The Guardian. You give a little money to a poor person. The poor person invests. He and she make money and they pay the money back. What could be better than that? Institutions publicize the tiny number of successes, but what they don't tell us is the much, much larger number of failures. One of the members didn't have any money to pay for her instalments, so the money was taken from another member. It can cause a lot of tension when a member can't repay their loan. If they deduct the money from me, I can't use it for other purposes. We become enemies. You go to Dhaka city, you go to any other big cities, you'll find buildings, beautiful buildings, hundreds of thousands of people working for these organizations. This is not a question of right or wrong. Definitely this microfinance can give you a lot of return. But our question is, who should be benefiting from return? I can't get out of it. I've tried everything, but it failed up to now. I had no money to pay the installments, so I had to sell the house. These organizations never stopped. They really put pressure on me. They come and stay until they get their money. That was a clip from The Micro Debt, the controversial Danish documentary which premiered in London recently and which has triggered a heated debate about whether microfinance actually does reduce poverty. For almost 35 years, microfinance has been the golden child of development policy, offering the simple idea that lending very small amounts of money to very poor people can help them to help themselves get out of poverty. Started by Mohammed Yunus in Bangladesh, it's now expanded to almost every part of the developing world. And in 2009, more than 190 million people received a microloan. I'm Madeleine Bunting, and in this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll take a closer look at microfinance. Many people like the sound of microfinance because it isn't charity, and it promises to put power in the hands of the poor. But are all poor people budding entrepreneurs? And what happens when people cannot repay their loans? In the last six months, a series of scandals have hit the burgeoning microfinance sector. News just coming in. In fact, in a shocking announcement, Nobel Peace Prize laureate and pioneer of microfinancing, Mohamed Yunus, has been fired from the very bank he founded. Dr. Yunus is making people even poorer. As soon as someone can't pay a loan, we give them another loan. And when they can't pay their debts, we threaten them. Meanwhile, after a spate of suicides reportedly triggered because of pressure to repay loans taken from microfinance institutions, the Andhra Pradesh government has brought in an ordinance to bring in more regulation and transparency in transactions. 23-year-old Amjad hanged himself to death on Monday after he was unable to repay on time the weekly installment of 540 rupees on the 24,000 rupees loan that his wife Kausar took from a microfinance institution. Nobel Peace Prize winner and founding father of microfinance, Mohammed Yunus, has been removed from his position at the top of the Grameen Bank and faces accusations of corruption. And in Andhra Pradesh, in India, there have been a series of suicides by indebted borrowers provoking concerns about the coercive methods of some private sector microfinance lenders. But underneath these recent controversies is a longer-running debate in which critics argue that microfinance isn't the magic bullet it's sometimes claimed to be. Joining me in the studio today is Cambridge economist and author of a recent paper, The Microfinance Illusion, Harjun Chang. 
And also with us is a microfinance advisor at the NGO Care International, Ajaz Khan. And down the line from Washington, D.C., we have microfinance expert and senior fellow at the Centre for Global Development, David Rudman. Hello to you all. Hi. Good to be here. Ajaz, Care has just launched a big new microfinance campaign called Lend with Care. Can, can you explain a little bit about this? Essentially, it's a peer-to-peer microfinance lending model uh, where lenders, it could be you or me, uh, in developed countries such as the UK or the US, can go online and lend uh, from as little as £15 uh, to entrepreneurs in, in developing countries. They can go online, they can select the entrepreneur, they can select the specific activity, they can select the gender, and the loan is eventually repaid back to them. And, and why is CARE interested in microfinance? What's got you interested in this model? From our own experiences, we've found that in particular circumstances and when implemented very well, uh, microfinance is uh, a very effective tool for, for, for poverty alleviation. David, can you explain a little bit about what's happening in Andhra Pradesh? Uh, we heard some very dramatic and rather disturbing uh, uh, references to some of the suicides there. W- what's going on? Well, it's a complicated story. If, you know, an analogy might be the big financial crisis has hit the UK and the US. You know, there are many, many angles to that story too. Um, but I think what's at the core of it is that the microcredit industry grew too fast there. It was on the order of, I don't know, uh, 70% a year for five or 10 years. And that meant that in the state of Andhra Pradesh, there were a lot of villagers who had never taken much microcredit before who suddenly could get loans from five or even 10 lenders who seemed rather eager to hand out the money. And it's sort of a familiar story in that sense. Some people did get in trouble. There were stories of suicides, um, people who were pressured to repay their loans and couldn't. It's hard to know what the truth is there. But based on my visit there to the, uh, last November, it really did seem like the, the, the system had gotten out of hand. Harjun, we're just mm-hmm. listening to very, very different accounts of microfinance. Um, Ajaz is describing Care International, who've worked out some very careful programs. Uh, we're talking also about Andhra Pradesh, where there's been a sort of free-for-all, it sounds like. Um, can you sort of distinguish between these very different models, or do you think the whole of microfinance uh, is in question. Oh no, there, there is a whole range of things. I think uh, there are some uh, microfinance institutions that uh, do relatively the low interest uh, lending, uh, complemented by supply of uh, expensive inputs uh, that uh, poor people cannot buy. I mean that uh, has a very different impact from some of the more predatory elements in the industry, which uh, would charge 100, 120% and demand repayment more or less uh, the, the following week. So I think uh, we have to take care in distinguishing different elements of uh, the microfinance industry. So when Ajaz says care has contributed to poverty alleviation, you're quite confident that is, can be the case? Basically, I think uh, the problem uh, is that uh, some of the proponents of uh, this uh, industry, especially the Dr. Yunus himself, uh, made some grand claims. I mean, uh, they, they sold it as a way to reduce poverty in general, sold it as a main vehicle for economic development. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to accept that, that this can play a very useful role in allowing uh, people to smooth their consumption in times of emergency and even help them make uh, the, some money that if uh, the 
also supplied with the appropriate uh, complementary inputs, but it's uh, not going to solve a uh, general poverty problem. It's uh, not going to uh, become the main road to the economic development. And uh, evidence uh, basically that uh, show that it uh, has a very useful limited role to play, but uh, not any of these uh, grand uh, claims that uh, have a real basis. What do you think, Ajaz? Yes, I agree with a lot of what, what Han Jun has, uh, has just said, but if you permit me to make a, a clarification at the outset, uh, my understanding of the term microfinance is it includes a broad range of financial services. So it includes savings, it includes insurance, it includes money transfers, it includes micro-leasing, as well as the provision of small loans, that is microcredit. So, in fact, a lot of the criticisms are directed towards a very small part of microfinance, which is microcredit. And even then, it's microcredit for a specific activity, which is enterprise development. I don't think people are, are arguing that microfinance doesn't, microcredit doesn't have a, a useful role to play in, in, in for housing loans, for example, for, for people to, to take out loans to build up their houses. Um, in fact, in development terms, uh, and perhaps in terms of poverty alleviation, I think many developmental practitioners will, will, will argue that in terms of benefiting poor people, um, of all these services, savings is perhaps the most useful. Um, and I think that the question is not whether microfinance works, because I, mean, I think my own experiences and a lot of my, my colleagues in the NGO sectors will say that it does work, but rather it's a question of what type of microfinance um, is best for particular types of poor people. Because the other thing is we, we quite often we assume that the poor people is one homogenous <laughs> group. It isn't. There is a whole range of categories from those who are destitute, disabled, uh, widows, to the entrepreneurial poor, to others who have uh, opportunities. My issue has been that I think in, in recent years that microfinance has been promoted almost indiscriminately. Um, amongst all types of poor people. Mm. So, so David, are we talking about a problem here, which is that microfinance is fine, it's just been sort of massively over-promoted and the claims made for it have been too exaggerated? Um, I think that that's roughly true, yes, that it has been hyped, um, but it is uh, sort of fundamentally a good thing, which doesn't mean it's always a good thing, it's just it's in its nature to be helpful. Um, uh, you know, if you try to imagine your own life without any financial services, no savings account, no checking account, no credit cards, you'd have to do everything by cash, you couldn't send money long distance, you realize pretty quickly that the things would be difficult, it would be very much, very, almost impossible to live a modern life without financial services. Poor people actually need financial services even more than the rich, because one thing about being poor that's easy to, um, to miss is not just that you have less money, but that your income is less predictable. And your spending needs are also less predictable because you don't have health insurance. And so poor people, even more than people, people like us, need ways to set aside money on good days and draw it down on bad. And savings and insurance all help them do that. So I think that microfinance, the idea of bringing these services to more people, is basically a good idea. Uh, but in the same way that I think mortgages are a good idea, the systems can sometimes get out of control. And in fact, that's, this is where the hype really becomes a problem because when you really hype uh, an intervention like this. First of all, it invites backlash, as we're now seeing, which can really undermine faith in the industry in the long run. 
but it can also generate too much uh, funding, which in the case of credit is a dangerous thing. You know, it can generate bubbles. Harjun, a development agency that gets into microfinance in the way, that, for example, CARE and many other uh, uh, NGOs have done, you don't have a problem with that? Yes, uh, except that uh, I would uh, raise uh, two points here. First is that we also need to think about alternative. You know, I mean, that, that yes, uh, it is uh, that better if a poor person can borrow money to go to a hospital, but why do we not have uh, generalized health insurance? Yeah? There has been a bit of a uh, kind of crowding out uh, of uh, uh, state-provided uh, uh, welfare uh, by these uh, microfinance uh, schemes. Another question we have to ask is that, uh, whether the, it is uh, feasible for everyone to join in, in this uh, entrepreneurial game. There are many different elements uh, in microfinance as, uh, in addition to the microcredit, but certainly a lot of people have uh, bought into this agenda because uh, this uh, enterprise angle has been promoted. I mean, despite the fact that actually most uh, microfinance institutions uh, lend only about uh, the 10 to 30 percent of their money to these entrepreneurial activities, you typically go to microfinance uh, the website, it will show the picture of a beautiful young lady uh, selling the basket that she has uh, woven with the help of this uh, microcredit. So that uh, angle that uh, was uh, very appealing to people, I mean, poor people getting out of poverty you know, by, by their own effort and so on. And uh, uh, I just has uh, also asked a question, I mean, is this uh, the right uh, model for everyone? David, I'm very interested by the way that you highlight the, the role microfinance has played in building social capital. Uh, I mean, Harjun's just given us an example of an individual woman setting up a business. Um, but actually, often, group lending is really important. And the way in which the Grameen Bank has become this, you know, major institution in Bangladesh is a very significant sort of, is that a, a side effect of microfinance? Oh, I see. So we're talking about the the success of the Grameen Bank itself as an institution as a kind of social capital? Well, more broadly, I mean, microfinance works through all kinds of groups in different types of programs. That one of the things that is underappreciated about microfinance, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, is the way that it has built rather impressive, mostly self-sustaining institutions in in, in many developing countries. You know, you look at the Grameen Bank, which uh, employs thousands and serves millions of people doing something that was once thought impossible. It has faced competition over the years and as a result has innovated. To me, that's a kind of, uh, almost like you, you could call it a business success, I suppose, but it's something that's very unusual in the field of uh, development or in the field of philanthropy. There is no Grameen Bank of vaccination. And if you think about, you know, what, this is what a lot of what uh, Hajun has written about. If you think about what really reduces poverty in the long run, it's not providing individualized services to poor people, whether it be credit or water, but it is supporting transformations of society, which fundamentally change how we make things and generate jobs. In that light, the Grameen Bank is one small example of that kind of success. It is something that is disrupted and improved um, the institutional fabric of Bangladesh, and there are examples elsewhere in the world. What the real strength of microfinance is, is not lifting people out of poverty, but building these kinds of dynamic institutions that bring useful services to millions of people. And not just those big institutions, but, you know, I I have a very vivid memory of sitting in the shade of a tree in in northern rural Uganda uh, watching a women's group, which was a savings and loans group where uh, women were all 
borrowing money and uh, it was immensely impressive the kind of degree of collaboration and cooperation that emerged in that community around the microfinance initiative. Um, Ajaz, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the, the claims that are made for microfinance in terms of empowering women. I mean, that's one of the big sort of selling points that are, is often emphasised. I spent many years working in uh, in the high Andes in Latin America for a peasant women's organization. And my experience was that over time I saw the women, through the access to microfinance, better plan their business activities, manage their cash flow, build their assets, particularly their, their, their homes, smooth their consumption, cope with shocks such as illnesses and funerals in the family. But... What was most vivid for me was the way that they, from a non-financial perspective, I saw them keep their, their children in school longer. I saw husbands treat their wives better. I mean, I'm, most vividly, I observed the women's self-esteem increase. And, and women organized themselves better to, to collectively address issues that were affecting their, their, their communities. Of course, many of these changes, especially the, the social aspects are very very difficult to measure but they did happen um, of course it, it could be that uh, access to microfinance was incidental played only a small role in these processes but uh, it might have happened anywhere but in my opinion access to the microfinance and the participation in the microfinance program was an important factor and at least it was it was da- a catalyst David do, do, is there evidence for, for what Ajaz and I have seen or you know anecdotally we're describing yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a tough one. Um, in a sense, we, the stories you just have told are evidence, but what I guess what you're asking is, is there more sort of systematic, rigorous evidence? Yeah. Because um, this is a very confusing area, because there are also stories of um, the opposite, of women feeling trapped in their credit groups because they're under tremendous peer pressure to repay, with, even when they're having difficulty doing so of women who have to sell their pots and pans or even their roofs in order to repay loans. And so then you get this, this collage of, of positive and negative stories, and it's very hard to know what to make of it, what's the overall pattern. Um, and I don't, so, But I don't think that there has been uh, randomized, rigorous uh, studies of these questions. Uh, my own take, based on looking through the academic literature, which is... Um, more qualitative, that is, people living in a village for a year and really studying what happens, is there's a surprising amount of uh, negativity in the stories that come out. And I don't assume that that's the majority of cases, but if even if it's 10%, say, I start to worry. You know, we, we, There's both an empirical question, like what is happening in the world, and then a moral one. Suppose it's freeing, you know, giving 90% of women more control over their lives and trapping 10% in debt. What do we do with that? It's a tough one. Yeah, very interesting. The other big question, of course, is how microfinance has moved into for-profit. It's always started out in the development world, but increasingly now it's also a private sector business. But some say that the only way to scale up the successes of microfinance is to move into the for-profit model. For Vikram Akula, founder of SKS Microfinance, India's largest and fastest-growing microfinance institution. For microfinance to truly have an impact on the global war on poverty, it needs outside investment, as well as the efficiency of the McDonald's model. Akula spoke to us earlier from his base in Hyderabad. 
while the government, while the NGO sector certainly has an important role to play in bringing access to finance, uh, alone they can't do it sufficiently. So in addition to that, a commercial model, model of microfinance where you don't depend on donor capital, you don't depend on subsidies from the state, is another way of increasing access to opportunities for the poor. I think two things that uh, the microfinance sector needs to refocus on, which is, number one, focusing on income-generating loans. These are loans that would have uh, a poor household, enable a poor household to, let's say, start a small you know, village grocery store or buy a cow or, or buy a sewing machine, versus lending for consumption. I think um, the sector needs to focus or refocus, if you will, on the income-generating loans, something that SKS has been doing you know, consistently from its uh, from its founding. Uh, the second thing I think the sector needs to refocus on is on building social capital. And what I mean by that is the microfinance sector has to focus on spending a lot of time with groups. Often we use a group lending model. And the group is in a position where it can best determine what the repayment capacity of uh, their fellow, you know, peer group uh, borrower is. And if you focus on building social capital in this way, you'll see that the group will keep in check those borrowers who may have a tendency to fall into over-indebtedness. The challenges the sector has faced um, in the past few months has now led to, I think, a set of regulations from central banks. I think what you'll see now as a result of this is a more methodical growth, where we think about the basics, think think about the things that have um, helped us achieve you know, tremendous strides over the decades and go back to those basics. And I think it'll keep in check a lot of the opportunistic players who maybe didn't understand the right way of doing microfinance. Harjun, you're a bit concerned about having for-profit uh, companies in this mm-hmm. sector at all, aren't you? Yeah, uh, let's uh, put this into perspective. You know, even the good uh, the microfinance institutions have to charge uh, 30 40% for these uh, loans, uh, Basically, because uh, let's face it, I mean, poor people are high-risk uh, cases. They have a uh, few skills. Uh, their health is uh, not good. Uh, but uh, if you charge this kind of uh, interest rate, you cannot grow viable business at, uh, on that basis. I mean, the, all over the world, the profit rate of non-financial corporations is uh, between 3 and 7%. You know, there, there are some countries where the profit rate is uh, 10 11% in some years. But that's about the maximum that that uh, business uh, in general can make, and you are expecting these people to make you know, enough profit uh, uh, to <laughs> repay the uh, loans uh, with uh, 30, 40 interest, uh, percent interest rate. Of course, uh, these people will work hard and uh, uh, do their best uh, to keep it up. But uh, if it goes anything above that level, I think uh, it's uh, basically not feasible to run any business uh, on that basis. I mean, just uh, uh, don't forget, I mean, the business in general all over the world make less than 10% profit. And uh, you are expecting these people to build a viable business on the basis of about uh, 40% interest rate. So are you saying the private sector ought to get out of microfinance? Oh, well, I mean, uh, they can stay, but uh, I think uh, they basically have to be an important element of uh, subsidies, uh, uh, by public bodies. There also have to be arrangements uh, to supply 
<coughs> complementary inputs. I mean, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, not uh, the pipe dream. I mean, this has been done. I mean, agriculture. When you say complementary inputs, oh, the, the, so for example, the, if you lend uh, money to say dairy farmers, if you do not help them in other ways. Uh, what they do is, uh, I mean, this has actually happened in some Balkan countries. I mean, uh, wh what they do is uh, to buy another cow. And uh, since uh, milk is uh, perishable and not easy to export, this uh, uh, destroys a uh, local milk market. And a lot of these farmers that uh, ended up uh, actually uh, having to sell their cow off. Now contrast this uh, with what happened in Denmark 100 years ago. They formed this agriculture corps, which provided microcredit to the farmers who all bought another cow, but the agricultural co-op also, using uh, the collective uh, fund, built uh, the creameries uh, so that uh, milk can be processed into butter and cheese and uh, exported to Germany, exported to Britain. The way from the process was uh, used to feed pigs, which were then slaughtered in a collective slaughterhouse and made into bacon and exported. Yeah? So, so your point would be that microfinance doesn't stand alone. It has to be integrated. No, it has to be the, the, a integrated part of, that's right, yeah, of the very complex set of interventions, some uh, public uh, welfare provision, some uh, the provision of uh, collective inputs, uh, sometimes uh, through cooperatives, sometimes uh, through government intervention, and, and uh, some elements of uh, the private lending and so on. Um, David, do you, do you think the private sector has a role in microfinance? Certainly, yes. It's kind of like asking, does the private sector have a role in the finance in the UK? Of course it does. Uh, it's not always a constructive role. So I, don't I was going to say, David, say, most of our <laughs> banks are nationalized. <laughs> right. Ireland is on the brink would... of nationalizing the <laughs> <Right>. last one. <laughs> right, but I don't think people would say, well, we shouldn't have banks, right, just because of what happened, right? It's, 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 a, it's a reminder that the banking industry is both very useful and very dangerous and has to be run in the right ways. I think we need to be very careful about not uh, equating high interest rates with high profits. Microcredit is often very expensive to provide, and so mo most of that interest is paying for is not profit. It's just the salaries of the workers who are doing it. And that's because the loans are very small. So compared to those small loans, the, the wages are expensive. Much we might want to do without profit in the sector, I just don't see how it's possible. So the challenge is to strike the right balance. Right. Um, we've uh, had a talk point on the website and we've been inviting questions from uh, people visiting the site. Fiona Clark from Help Aged uh, International asked, what is the microfinance sector doing in order to support poor people to save for old age? I wondered, Ajaz, if there's any aspect of CARES work that looks at that aspect of things. Yeah, I think the huge focus of, of CARES work is actually uh, promoting savings. Um, it's been doing village savings and loans associations, which are essentially community-managed um, groups of 15 to 25 women who, who get together and, and save small amounts each week, um, and then building upon that to, to actually lend. So I think the best microfinance work is heavily reliant upon savings. I mean, my, just picking on a point that, that, that Hanjun made before, the best microfinance if it's financially possible, will always complement its activities with other services. Mm -hmm. Microfinance works most effectively 
when you accompany it with with financial bookkeeping literacy financial literacy because at the end of the day you're dealing with very poor and vulnerable people many of them will are illiterate many of them will have got the loan for the first time the final question uh, i'm going to come to you david because the okay. final question that we had on the talk point uh, on the website really puzzles me and uh, one of the things that david and harjun have emphasized is how little evidence we have actually for microfinance reducing poverty so the question is why is it being so popular why are donors and and uh, ngos pouring millions and millions into microfinance what's your theory on that david i think there's several reasons one is that in a sense it is meta market test there are 150 or i think you said 190 million people using it today if that number were 190,000 instead of 190 million we wouldn't be here so the fact that people are going out and using it is very exciting and interesting Uh but then there's the sort of a lot about the optics of microfinance. It's appealing to people on the left because it talks about empowerment of women. It's appealing to people on the right because it's about helping people lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. I think there's also this way in which it kind of makes the intermediary like care disappear. If I give to microcredit, I can imagine myself giving my money directly to that poor person that I see on the TV screen or on the the, the computer screen. Uh and that's very appealing too it creates a nice psychological connection. Well that's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast for more on development issues visit guardian.co.uk global development my thanks to Harjun Chang David Rudin Ajaz Khan I'm Madeleine Bunting the producer was Peter Sale and the researcher was Claire Provost. For more great downloads go to guardian.co.uk/audio.